0: And welcome to another episode of Merlot and Me. I'm your host, Linda Kamau. And today I have my final guest, guys, Aubrey Terrazas. Hey Aubrey, how are you? Hi, Linda. I'm great. Yeah, so Aubrey is an 18-year hospitality professional, a master sommelier candidate, and an e-commerce entrepreneur who found who co-founded the digital wine service palette club. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the journey to becoming a master sommelier and her business and what she's what she's up to right now because i think that's <laughs> very important because we have our first legitimate wine expert on this podcast so yeah this is a big episode <laughs> uh, so in typical fashion um i would introduce the wine and then we would get started into the into the discussion but Since we have a wine expert, I thought, why don't you talk about it? Actually let you choose it. I went to the store and picked out the one you wanted. So I want to hear everything you have to say about this wine. So go for it, Aubrey.
1: Yeah, so for you, I selected a Vino Verde, but it is a very special Vino Verde. Um, So this is a Portuguese white, but it's coming from the north of the country. It's just on the Spanish border across the river really from Rias Baixas in Spain. Uh, and they both actually make the same grape. So the main grape in Rias Baixas is Albarino, and it's called Albarino in Portugal. And oftentimes with Fino Verde, you'll have a mix of different white varieties. But specifically, this wine is from a sub-region that's very close to Spain called um, Mont months out.
0: <laughs> um, no, yeah but it's, it's hard to say these words isn't it like i i struggle every week with these like french words spanish words so i yeah, get yeah <laughs> you
1: have to um you have to know um how to pronounce a lot of different languages to get into wine mm-hmm. um, but from this sub region they specialize only in in el rino and so for me it has a much more textural experience than a typical vino verde which can be kind of watery and you get a lot more of those really fruity notes that alvarino is is known for so tropical fruits you definitely have this saline kind of ocean spray minerality more of that mid palate, typically really high refreshing acidity and um for me the the other thing that's a little bit different i guess um to compare it to spain is in Rioja, it's the Albarino will tend to be a little bit heavier in body and a little bit more fruit forward, whereas this version mm-hmm. should be more mineral. Um, I actually am I'm drinking a red from from Portugal. We when we first talked, we thought that um, uh, we'd be I'd be in Portugal, but I'm in France now. But nonetheless, oh, I have a yeah. red from the Douro Valley. Um, which is not too far technically, geographically, but much warmer, drier, known for port wine, but their reds are amazing, fruity with definitely lots of tertiary notes.
0: Mm -hmm. I actually, we had a port wine in the first, the second episode of the podcast, and I was not a fan of port wine. (laughs) I'm really not. I find it just a bit too sweet for me. I don't know. I don't, is it always, it's, it's supposed to be like a dessert wine is what I gather from it, right?
1: Yeah, you know, I was actually just in port like two days ago and it kind mm. of gave me a newfound appreciation. I, and for most people it is, um, it is sweet. It is a sweet wine, but there are a lot of different styles within it. It has something like 30 different styles. And mm. so um, if you look white port, It can be a really great aperitif and has more flexibility for wine pairing. And tawny port for me is a little less sweet than ruby port. And that's a more oxidative style. It has lots of nutty notes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you get really the the tawny. (laughs) Yeah, 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 that's very common. um, And uh, if you can find a really nice uh, single vineyard port, it will be ruby instead has a ruby color, red grapes, high fruitiness, but also again those sort of lots of floral and spicy notes. Those can mm-hmm. be so complex and lovely. but absolutely generally you have maybe a glass. It's great for dessert pairing. Um, traditionally, this was very port is extremely important. It's one of the first wine regions in the world actually. But this diet, the trends are drier now I think for most people
0: yeah i think that's that's more popular with the uh, the mainstream wine drinking audience yeah. <laughs> but yeah i'm gonna try out this alvarino or albarino and see what it tastes like cheers this is good yeah it's very good i don't usually i don't drink a lot of white wine but when i do i prefer them to be like on the drier side so this is this is very up my alley (laughs) but i I can totally taste a lot of fruit in there but how do you how do you identify like the specific like flavors or fruit or the, the specific notes that you talked about earlier how do you pick that out is it your nose or is it actually like your taste buds
1: well it's both they're they're tied and that's a great question. I would say one of the ones I get asked most often. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, it just takes practice, just like anything else. If if you wanna learn the guitar, you have to practice scales. If you wanna learn how to taste wine, you need to drink a lot of wine. So <laughs> it's not bad, um, yeah. but you can practice at the grocery store as well by, I mean, literally, you know, it's when you're cooking, smell what the cumin smells like, smell the black pepper, when you're shopping at the farmer's market, pick up a fresh peach and see what that smells like. And after a while, you kind of create this mental Rolodex. And mm-hmm. so when you smell a glass of wine, instead of just being like, ah, it has something familiar, but I don't know what it is, your brain can fire up and say, oh, this smells like peaches. This smells like cherries, whatever. Um, minerality is harder because we don't usually lick rocks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's something that's used a lot in wine. Um, so that takes a little bit more practice, but there, we still do have those flavor memories. For example, mm. in champagne, they have chalky soils. And I think we all have used a piece of chalk before and it does have that sort of like powdery, dusty smell. Mm-hmm. Um, graphite, if you like on a pencil, has its own smell. And salt, of course, has its own taste. And I think that kind of goes right. back into the olfac- olfactory system. So you smell a little bit, and then you taste it um but what you taste and what you smell aren't always the same and that can tell you a lot about the wine as well
0: that's interesting that is is so fascinating like I could probably talk to you for five years about this but (laughs) for the sake of the listeners we need to actually say what what is a sommelier or is it is it sommelier or is it sommelier how do you say it (laughs) <laughs> uh,
1: that's actually um there are a lot of different uh it's kind of an industry joke because yeah. i'm not sure that anyone is pronouncing it just right um it is a french word that means wine right. wine waiter um sommelier is how you pronounce it in french for men and women it's actually sommelier and oh. but we yeah it um but we usually just use the the um gender neutral term which is unfortunately always you know, favors the men. So we usually right. say sommelier, um, or psalm. Psalm works.
0: A psalm. Okay. Your psalm. So what exactly is a psalm? Let's talk us through it. What is this? Um, how do you become one as well? Actually, no, no, just what what is a psalm? Let's start there. Let's say what exactly is a psalm?
1: Yeah, so a psalm is traditionally it's a person at a restaurant that services wine. Mm -hmm. And so they need to have great wine knowledge. They oftentimes will curate the list and they'll also know how to serve it properly, which is important. So knowing when it's flawed, knowing the right temperature, knowing the right glass, knowing the right food pairing. Um, Now it's more loosely used to describe a wine expert in general, Um, especially in the States. uh, We work with a global wine market unlike France or Italy, where the psalm at a restaurant will really just know the wines from their region. You have to know so much about wine to work at an American restaurant nine times out of 10. And so it, it's kind of en- encompassed just anyone that knows about wine, but there is a big difference between a wine expert and someone that's a wine expert and is also trained in wine services. That's the combination of the two.
0: Oh, okay. And what drew you to become a psalm?
1: Yeah. Well, I loved wine. So that's the first start. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I worked in restaurants for ages. I started waiting tables when I was 14. And so it was very natural for me to progress into fine dining. Even during uni, like I was able to get really nice fine dining jobs where I was able to maybe make a bit more cash than a lot of my peers that were working at Starbucks or something, not that there's Mm -hmm. anything wrong with it, but it's just, you know, I I was able to develop my career from a young age and people that are in the service industry that are serving tables, that they get into wine, Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a natural next step because you you find something in hospitality that you really gravitate towards that um, allows you to... uh, be curious about the world in general, yeah, and you get to drink wine while you're waiting on tables, so it's great.
0: Seeming there's a lot of traveling involved,
1: yeah, well, it depends. Um, so I would say that a lot of Psalms do travel often because you just get to experience a wine region so much differently when you're there, you know. Like I said, I was. I was in the Douro Valley where they make ports a couple of days ago, and it gave me a fresh perspective, a better understanding on the wine, more appreciation. Mm -hmm. Um, On the flip side, if you're working at a restaurant, you don't really have great vacation days. And so it depends on how much they really let you travel. I, I haven't been working full time in restaurants for maybe five years now, so I've been able to travel quite a bit more.
0: That's amazing, and you mentioned the training just a few seconds ago. Um, is this something that you have to start like in college, or is it like training that's like on the job? Are there actual courses?
1: Yeah, I it can so a sommelier is a profession, right? It's mm-hmm. not, um, it's not a certification technically, but there are a lot of certifications that can give you more credibility if that's a job that you're pursuing the main Mm -hmm. one in the states is the court of masters sommeliers and so the the top there are four levels um and even for just a wine lover like yourself you could pursue the intro you don't have to work Mm. in a restaurant yeah um really anyone can pursue at a lower level but if you are not working frequently at a restaurant it gets quite difficult to pass the higher levels like the master song Um, but the, you, many people become a sommelier just from learning about wine. And usually a natural path would be, you know, being a server at a restaurant Mm
0: -hmm. and showing
1: an interest in wine, and then sort of having a mentor who is a psalm at your restaurant to kind of take you under their wing and show you different wines, talk about wines and have you help with the seller and things like that. So you can go either way. Um, but I think that, a lot of people that pursue that career have some sort of hospitality background
0: that makes a lot of sense like my sister although she probably doesn't want me to talk about her on the podcast she <laughs> went to a university where they did like hospitality and like hotel management i think was the main focus and i think one of the one of the semesters they focus on like food and beverages and they were like working with a lot of sommeliers so I can imagine it's a very like, you need, you really need to be hands-on. Otherwise, how will you learn? Like even identifying the tastes like you mentioned earlier, that's something that you pick up with time, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Textbooks only get you so far. You really need to, and it's, you can, a lot of it is memorization from books. Mm -hmm. So that way, if someone is saying, you know, I want a dessert wine, but I don't want it too sweet, then you, your brain can fire up and say, Okay, well, the minimum sugar level for Sautern is much less than it is for Tokai. So I'm gonna lead them towards this wine.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but I think that to for me at least to get to really get those flashcards to stick, you need to be able to taste the wine and experience it.
0: Yeah. And like, I don't know, this is a weird question to ask, but like on average, like how many grape varieties have you tried? Like. Gosh! In total, because I know there's around ten thousand different varieties, and that's a lot. There's no, even even though you've amassed eighteen years of of, (laughs) of professional experience, I can't imagine that you've tried all ten thousand. But if you could guess,
1: gosh. Well, I'm. I definitely haven't been doing a scorecard, but I mean (laughs) hundreds and hundreds because I've tried wines from all over the world, from Croatia, from Greece,
0: Portugal, Mm -hmm.
1: Italy. And a lot of those varieties come from countries like that, that have indigenous varieties you don't really see outside of the country. So for example, you know, Alvarino is, is you do see it maybe in California, it's kind of trendy, but really it's just grown in that region of the world. I'm drinking Mm -hmm. a Turiga Nacional, primarily it's a blend. It already has four different grapes in my wine that are pretty much just produced in, um, in uh, Portugal
0: wow so yeah i I, you just guess something in the hundreds not even in the thousands scale
1: maybe in the thousands i don't you know it's really hard to say (laughs) because i think that that number the ten thousand, also could include different clones so for example pinot noir has a lot of different clones to it so if you were to look at that separately then yeah you know there's the dijon clone there's um there's the the swan clone there's all of these different types of Pinot Noir and all of these different types of of Sangiovese so um, if you start to factor in that then yeah I guess you could say probably tasted thousands
0: that's crazy but like on a in a general in a general sense is there anything such as bad wine I think I don't think it's true I don't think it's possible I mean there could be cheap wine but is there anything like actual like this is horrible wine do not drink it it's bad.
1: Yeah, there's bad wine.
0: Really? <laughs>
1: I think so, yeah. And, um, you know, to your, to your point, Linda, I think that the technology and the global experience of winemaking has come a long way. And mm. so a lot of times when you drink a cheap wine, it's just kind of boring. You know, it's mm. not offensive. But I can think of, I won't call them out by name, but...
0: Um, <laughs> There, there are some
1: great wineries in Texas. So I want to start the conversation by saying that. But okay. when I was tasting in Fredericksburg a couple of years ago, there was this one winery that actually imported the grapes from Italy or France and then made it in Texas. Why? I don't know. <laughs> but that's how they did it. And mm-hmm. it was um, and I, you know, came in, I ordered a flight after the first wine I said I can't do this and then I tried my husband's wine which was something different and it was the same thing it was like two wines no like I can't no I'm not gonna I it was bad it was, do you I think it's because
0: it. they imported the the grapes instead of importing the wine itself
1: yeah uh that that does make a big factor and that's something that I think mm-hmm. a lot of wine drinkers don't realize is that a lot of times those cheap labels or mm-hmm. um there are a lot of wine clubs, for example, such, and I will call it out this time, such so as Wink, <laughs> um, that imports the grapes. And because of the three-tiered distribution system in the States, it's very tricky to ship wine to different states. So they get around it by being called a winery, which means they have to make the wine a facility in California, for example. But they're mm-hmm. still making, you know, sunset. well, not sunset, I guess, but they're, they're making, you know, French wine from grapes that might be imported from that region. But the freshness of the grape is so important that most quality wineries make an effort to pick the grapes close to the winery. And if there is any transport happening, then they keep the grapes really cool, which is so often times why harvest is done in the evening. So that way the grapes are cooler, the acidity is fresher. But if you can imagine, you know, they're picked in Italy and maybe it's already grapes and then they're shipped to Texas and then made in a facility. You know, think about how, I mean, we've all had the experience of having like a farmer's market strawberry versus a grocery store strawberry that's been shipped from another part of the world. And it's mm. night and day, right? So the fresher the fruit can be, the better wine, the wine will be.
0: Right, that that makes complete sense to me. But I guess the, the opposite answer, the opposite to that question would be, is there like a lot of unnecessary elitism like oh french wine is the best wine like (laughs) nobody can do it like the french (laughs) have you seen a lot of that in this industry
1: yeah yeah i do think that that's there um and to be fair there are parts of the world that have a much longer winemaking tradition so Mm -hmm. for example in burgundy monks spent they're all the time and you know with the 12th century figuring out the exact plots of wine being very scientific about which vineyards make the best grapes and they figured it out and they've been doing it for years and years and years so of course that's going to be a better wine than Mm -hmm. some guy that just discovered this brand new region in um i don't know where peru um but I <laughs> there's nothing wrong no with shade, I'm not no saying shade to Peru. no <laughs> shade to Peru, but just as an example, you know, yeah, there, yeah. there is a winemaking tradition in some regions. And you can see it even in Europe, because um uh communism and politics slowed down quality winemaking a lot in like Portugal and Spain, which now make really, really great wines. But um, you know, they're they're still kind of getting their traction, they're figuring out which places make the best grapes, da, da, da. Overall, though, in 2021, it's so easy outside of COVID. Generally speaking, it's pretty easy to travel to to France or Italy and learn this tradition, just as now French winemakers might go to Australia or California and borrow their traditions. And so we start to see a lot more blend of experience and of style and of tradition. And, you know, we're in the age of the internet, so people can communicate and share ideas a lot more easily mm-hmm. uh, and we have technology to to measure quality of grapes as well so it's you can i think nowadays find really really great wine from anywhere in the world so it's important to be open-minded because so you yeah. can be surprised
0: i love that that's that's a good answer um would you say that the wine industry is competitive and i mean in the sense of like the the producers because there's so many. There's so many brands, so many like wineries coming up every year. And like, I don't even think it's possible to list them all down. Do you think it's like too competitive for somebody to start now? Like, hey, I want to open a winery, my California grapes. <laughs> like, is it possible or is it just like this too much now?
1: It's possible, but there is a joke in the wine industry that the only Mm -hmm. way to be a millionaire by making wine is to start as a billionaire.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's that's actually probably very true.
1: Yeah. It's, it's very hard. It, um, the margins are very small and it is a very competitive field. And most people don't want to pay $40 for their average bottle of wine. And so especially entering the market, You really Mm -hmm. have to position yourself as premium from the beginning. Um, But I will say that it's a very community-driven industry as well. Certainly, winemakers help each other out. They they work with each other. Um, But they they of course they have to be competitive because they they need to sell their product. It's their livelihood, and um, that can come through through just better placements, being more aggressive in the market. But I think the people that the, the wineries that do the best are the ones that have the most community outreach in one way or the other through hosting, you know, trade for tastings, for having someone with the company that travels around the world and shows the wine and is talking about the wine. It's like, you mm-hmm. really need to have an advocate for the winery to, um, to, to grow a brand now.
0: Well yeah, I, I can imagine like if Elon Musk decided to <laughs> start a winery, he would get like millions of buyers because of him being Elon Musk, not really even because of the quality of the wine. So that 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 totally checks out. But what about the now in the service industry as a sommelier? Is it very competitive to get into that space? Are you like fighting for mentors or <laughs> yeah. what is that like? <laughs> yeah,
1: I I think that it can be tricky, just like any industry. It can be very tricky to get your foot in the door, mm-hmm. um, because a lot of times those positions are not necessarily advertised on Craigslist or something. It's something where yeah. you know it's a restaurant. It's like okay, I need a new wine director, and they're going to talk to the reps or even maybe the the wine director that's leaving the restaurant mm-hmm. will recruit someone to replace them, and so. Um, your first position can be really hard. So for people that are interested in it, it's, like I said, you know, starting as a food runner or server at a place that where you like the wine list and making friends with the Psalm can be really helpful because they, they can train you. And the easiest mentor will always be the person that's closest to you. So if, you know, it's it's much harder to get someone's attention if it's a master psalm, a wine director that's already working 60 hours a week and they're at the restaurant. But if you're sharing that time with them, then, of course, it's easier to get their attention.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is a very, like, male-dominated industry. Do you see a lot of other women sommeliers or is it just mostly guys like have you worked with do you do is that a thing do they collaborate with others is that something you would need to do at all or no
1: uh yeah well a lot of restaurants do have several psalms
0: mm-hmm. um
1: and so typically the the hierarchy would be the beverage director or the wine director and then oftentimes there'll be like a lead psalm which is kind of like you know it's like ceo president and mm-hmm. then it has other psalms like kind of the junior school under them, and then sometimes even a cellar master, which is basically someone that like brings in the wine shipments, and unpacks the boxes, and puts the organizes them on the shelves, and maybe mm-hmm. runs and gets the bottle during service. It's not a glamorous job, but it is you know again a good way to get your foot in the door. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, there there are a lot of female sommeliers now. I think it is a newer trend. It's a, mm-hmm. an industry that traditionally is dominated by men. Winemakers are still, I would say there are a lot more men than women. And part of it is just an older tradition. It's changing, but the perception mm. has been, you know, it would be the man that ordered the wine it'd be the man that knows about those things. I don't know. So, yeah. um, it could be hard in the beginning to get taken seriously. Um, but that's, I think that's starting to change more. There's more and more women.
0: Mm-hmm. I, have you had to face any difficulties with this? Or,
1: sure, yeah. I, I, like I said, I think in the beginning, especially when I was young and I didn't have the experience to back me up, mm-hmm. I, I think the hardest thing was getting taken seriously. Um, I did have some, some luck in the beginning of my career, some, some nice job opportunities that helped to leverage my, my. Further opportunities, but um, you know, both internally and guest perception is that you know when a young woman walks up to the table, she's not the one that's going to explain to them about back vintages of Burgundy. Mm. So I had to assert my knowledge a lot more than maybe a man would be, and it's kind of tricky because I'm I'm from the Midwest. I I have a lot of humility, and is how I was raised. And so I'm not usually someone that goes in and then talks about how awesome I am. But if you're a woman in a male-dominated industry, you kind of have to, so that way you get past that bias that the other person might have, uh, and they trust you, so that way you can continue the conversation.
0: Okay, so it's, it's really just residual biases that are preventing. Like right now, there's not like obvious like obstacle, not somebody like we don't, we have a maximum number of master psalms that we would like and only three of them can be women each is that is that that kind of bearing or is that, or is that just I, ridiculous
1: there's no technical bearing like that um mm-hmm. but there are I forget the exact there's like 250 master psalms in the states and 26 mm-hmm. of them are women um wow. so there's still a big discrepancy and there are certainly restaurants that won't have I went because they say, oh, well, you need to lift a lot of boxes as a psalm, da-da-da. Uh, mm. And I would say that the biggest issue, there was actually a New York Times article in 2020 that they called it out. So it's very searchable if anyone wants to dig deeper. But one of the biggest obstacles that women have had to get over in the wine industry is sexual harassment, unfortunately. And it, it kind of makes sense because it is competitive. It's very advantageous to have a mentor. And I've been lucky enough to have a partner pretty much for my whole wine career. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was able not to say I didn't face any of it, but it was easier for me to to make boundaries because I was I was married, you know, and trust me, married women get sexually harassed, too. But um, you can imagine that a young woman that wants to get into the industry, there are some older men that take advantage of that situation because they're vulnerable. And especially since we work with alcohol, it could be, it's very normal to have a business meeting over a glass of wine, but then suddenly it's this like quasi date and the boundaries start to blur. And, um, it's, it's very tricky for women. You know, it still gets tied to being taken seriously you know it's I'm here to learn about wine I'm here to advance my career I'm Mm. not here as a piece of meat I don't know
0: (laughs) yeah that's that's almost disgusting because they would never do that if it was a meeting with a man like that's purely charged by gender so that's really that's almost disgraceful I don't know do you think it's because there's such a large age gap between so I mean how old are can I ask how old you are
1: (laughs) sure I'm 33 um but I started when I was I was my first some job I was 24
0: and you were probably dealing uh, with people like in their 40s 50s right yeah so yeah do you think it's because of that large age gap that there's that lack of respect and um obvious like explicit sexism in the industry like had there, because I'm guessing in the past there weren't that many women sommeliers so these older like more advanced master sommeliers are mostly men like the like the 26 you mm-hmm. said are probably like younger maybe around your age now uh,
1: no th- um it's there's definitely a mix of of the females in terms of age um mm-hmm. I think the age could definitely play a part of it but it's yeah. not the sole factor because there are other men our age that um, you know, myself and my peers, I mean, that mm-hmm. that didn't face issues like that, you know. Mm-hmm. For a young man that's entering a professional career, he can be seen as um, I don't know, like a, a, a prodigy or something, you know, like it's it's almost yeah. exciting when men are young and ambitious, whereas women you know, again, just really have to prove themselves a lot more to be taken seriously, one, because they're women and two, because they're young. Yeah. Um, and there are certainly men that, that, uh, you know, push those boundaries that were at the same age group too. So it's, it's not just age, but I think that was just another piece of the puzzle that many of us had to get over.
0: Mm-hmm. I can imagine. My next question was like, how, what, how sustainable is being a song like once you have become a master psalm, like what what what's next for that for that position like you're at the top of the wine world yeah what are you doing after that are you opening a restaurant are you opening a bar or something
1: yeah I think everybody's professional journey is their own mm-hmm. um but what I can say is working in restaurants after doing it for 18 years is it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there are some people that just live for it, but, you know, I didn't go home for the holidays for over a decade because I was always working. And even when I was, you know, a general manager, wine director, like a top position Michelin starred restaurant and on salary, I had five days of vacation a year.
0: Five.
1: Five.
0: And you were, were you working in the U.S. or were you working out of the U.S.?
1: That was in San Francisco.
0: Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. I, that's very little. That's, that's quite. Yeah,
1: cool. what do you do with that? You know, that's not even yeah, a weekend, anymore. go.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't awesome. get holidays off. Even, I,
1: so, yeah, that's, that's what I was
0: going to ask. <laughs> you don't get the holidays off, do you? Because <laughs> that's no. the most popular time, right?
1: <laughs> right. So it's not like oh, you get two weeks, but you also get Memorial Day off and Christmas Eve off. It's like, no, like if the restaurant Mm. is opening, you're there. Um, So working at a bigger group can be helpful because then there's more people on the team to fill in if you want some time off to travel. And that's kind of what I was saying is that, you know, some Psalms get more opportunities to travel if they have a bigger team that can support them when they're not on the floor. But in mm-hmm. general, it's a very, it's very tough if you're literally like working service and many people after they get to the master SOM uh, level, then they might move into education or entrepreneurship, making wine, something, something else in the industry. There's a lot of different mm-hmm. career opportunities in the wine industry. I think being a SOM is a great way to learn about wine and to try a lot of different types of wine all the time. Um, But uh, it's it's kind of ironic because there's the Court of Master Sommeliers, and then there's also the WSEP program, which for many people that pursued at the top, the next step would be Master of Wine. They're equally as prestigious. Master Mm -hmm. of Wine, usually they say it's more like wine business, and Court of Master Sommeliers is more service. But and honestly, once you're at master level, most people are not looking to work service. There are some that do, and that that's great. They might be a wine director for a big restaurant group or be a wine buyer for an airline. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot more career opportunities that you have even as a speaker or educator. Uh, but nine times out of 10, they are not planning to stay in a restaurant forever.
0: hmm Makes a lot of sense. I mean, you chose not to because you said you haven't worked yeah. in a restaurant for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And that brings me to my next thing. I wanted to talk about the Palette Club for a little bit. Because yeah. that was that's your baby. You co-founded this with, and what what inspired you to start this wine club sort of service that you've got going?
1: Yeah, our founder, Nicola is French and so he felt like he knew a lot about wine as many Frenchmen mm-hmm. do. <laughs> but <laughs> he, he and he does. I don't I don't mean to discredit that at all, but um he moved to the states about 5 years ago and was very frustrated because it's very confusing as a consumer. There are hundreds of thousands of labels in the world. Even at a wine shop, there are hundreds of labels if you go to buy wine online, it's very confusing to know what you're going to like and to mm. spend money on it. Even a lot of the wine clubs that did exist that claimed to match wines to your taste, as I mentioned, were, you know, using bulk wine. So not quality wine and not quality data either, because they use factors like how you take your coffee and what type of fruit you like, which doesn't <laughs> really have anything to do with your wine taste. Exactly. Exactly. And um, so what, I,
0: what is your what is your science behind this then? How are you determining? Like, what what questions are you asking actually to figure out people's tastes? If you're allowed to tell me,
1: yeah, of course. Um, so I I joined on pretty much from the beginning.
0: Mm-hmm. I thought it was a
1: great idea. And what we do is we use AI to match wines to your taste. The way that that works is we've identified around 200 different wine traits that could be found in wine. So anytime that we buy a wine. Uh, myself or another psalm that has been trained to taste objectively basically rates the bottle based on around 30 40 characteristics that are in that bottle and Mm -hmm. so when you try the wine it's shipped blind it has a secret bottle number and in the app you put in you know it'll 251 and you rate it one to five stars and then that starts to tell us what types of wines you like um you can onboard by taking a quiz but it's more based on wine questions rather than just general food questions yeah Uh, or you can do uh sorry or or you can do the blind tasting kit which is four half bottles shipped blind and they're meant to be kind of polarizing so we have a better opportunity to create your initial wine profile after you rate four wines of the same color you get a palette profile and every time you rate wines it it's responsive it's ai so we learn more and more about your taste
0: I love that. That's really cool. And actually, I'm thinking about signing up to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> and for the listeners, and this is only in the U.S., right?
1: Yeah. As I mentioned, alcohol mm. is one area that has very tricky laws, that vary not only by country, but by state. So currently, mm. we only service the states, but we do have plans in the future to service Europe as well.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, to the listeners, if you're interested in having Aubrey and her team, figure out what wine you'd enjoy the most, um, I'm going to link the Palette Club's website in the show notes, and you can go and check it out and subscribe, I guess, <laughs> to the yeah. to the service. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, actually, I was going to ask, is it possible to really be unbiased as a sommelier, as someone who's tasting the wine? Or can you, do you like have a tendency to swing towards a certain grape, towards a certain region? that type of thing.
1: Yeah, well, I think we all have our own personal preferences, mm-hmm. but uh, to part of um, becoming sommeliers, you really learn to blind taste based on the factors. And so we all kind of have the, a shared language about what medium plus tannin looks like, what high acid looks like, what red fruit looks like. And so um, we. that's why we have uh, wine professionals always taste the wines when we buy it because we even if we don't like the wine we well I mean honestly we don't buy anything that we wouldn't drink ourselves Mm Psalms tend to like all good wine but even if it's not a wine we would normally go for we want to make sure that there are wines for everyone and so we base um, the quality for us is based on the length of the finish the purity and freshness of the fruit um the balance of the wine so making sure the alcohol tannin fruit is all kind of in equilibrium mm-hmm. and we also look for sustainable factors as well and we tend to favor wineries that take more sustainable
0: practices oh what are these sustainable practices it's interesting i'd like to know more
1: yeah it's a really broad term in wine because it's not regulated in the way that um other things are um in the states uh, it can only be organic if it has extremely low sulfite levels that are almost impossible to reach even through natural fermentation. So mm-hmm. oftentimes you'll see made with organic grapes on a label. Um, but there are other things too, um, you know, how much water they use in the winery, if they choose to spray or not, if they're doing regenerate regenerative farming to take care of the land and the soil, because it is a, a monoculture, um, which can be very tiring on earth. And mm-hmm. so it's important that you have some sort of you know, like natural insects, um, introducing natural predators that will eat the bad stuff, that eats the wine. There's a lot of different practices they could do. And since it's not heavily regulated, we make sure that we kind of dig into the story of the winery so we understand mm-hmm. this. Even if it doesn't say sustainable on the label, we've identified that wine to have sustainable practices.
0: OK, so you must have like very good relationships with your providers then.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would say that it's a mix of us going directly to the wineries, um, or we work closely with distributors that have those close relationships and can uh, be an advocate and be able to dig a little bit deeper into those winemaker stories.
0: Mm, Okay, well, Aubrey, we're getting towards the end. And I usually like to ask my guest a couple of alcohol related questions but today I guess there'll be wine related questions (laughs) since you are a wine expert so do you have a favorite wine and which one is it
1: yeah like I said I I tend to like all wines it depends on the the season the meal the person I'm with um but I am always a big lover of champagne
0: oh it's a nice answer um okay and do you have a least favorite or something you never want to drink again
1: that wine from Texas that I mentioned. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. And the last one is you can either choose to tell me the story of your first sip of wine and which one it was, or the story of your worst sip. I mean, you already kind of told me about the Texas one. So <laughs> I'd say maybe the first one would be would be a better story.
1: Yeah. Well, my first one was also really terrible wine. Um, I was drinking before I was 21. Um, maybe not a big surprise to listeners, no. but um, I, so I think I had my first sip of wine when I was like 14 and it was Boone's farm, which is not maybe as well known now, but it's like this really, it's more kind of like a wine cooler and it was blue yeah. wine. It was like blue raspberry wine or something like that. Everything. My, <laughs> my mom for like $3 or something. Uh, so it was, I don't remember it super well, but funny enough, blue wine is trendy again. And I had a blue wine recently, but I just, I no offense to anyone that likes it. Maybe it was the one I had, but it, to me, it tasted like Kool-Aid and I just don't want that in a glass of wine.
0: What makes it blue? Is it the grape or is it like food coloring? Like what's, what's turning uh, the blue? not
1: quite food coloring. They use, I, gosh, I need to dig into this. I, um, I think it's like something they use some sort of I think it's something to do with butterflies. I, what? <laughs> I I'm sorry, I don't have a better answer. I wish that I was more prepared for that question. I need to look into it to and I'll post about it on my Instagram or
0: something. Wow. Blue. I mean, I've heard of orange wine. So I'm very fascinated by blue wine. That would be a fun one for the podcast, maybe in the second season. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Aubrey, for coming on and sharing this drink with me. It's really great hearing what it takes to become a master song and I wish you all the best with your with your final test. Do you know when that's going to be?
1: Uh, Yeah, well, so they host it usually once a year for the theory. And then if you pass the theory, then you go on to service and tasting. Yeah. I have sat for the theory twice and that's not uncommon. A lot of people will never pass. Um, I chose to not sit this year because between like COVID and moving to France last year or in 2019, but it was at the end of the year and Mm. entrepreneurship, it was just a little bit too much. Um, And so I I was kind of taking a slower pace, Um, but I might sit again next summer. And then if Mm -hmm. I pass theory, then I'll have tasting and service in the fall.
0: Well, that's amazing. And I wish you all the best. I'm sure you're going to kill it <laughs>
1: but Thank you, yeah i appreciate it
0: yeah and thanks for being here for our final episode it's amazing I, I didn't when i started this podcast i really didn't think i would get to the point where i would have an actual song there on it <laughs> well not this soon anyways but yeah i'm really glad that we had you on and you got to share your wisdom and all your knowledge with us I'm sure everyone's taking notes right now (laughs) yeah and hopefully I can have you again in a future episode if you're down to do that again that would be really cool so yeah thanks for coming on thank you listeners for staying around for this for, for however many episodes I've had so far and I hope to come back in the future with a second season so yeah don't forget to share this with all the wine lovers in your life and we'll see you when we see you for more information of course you can follow us on instagram there'll be all the stuff in the notes so yeah bye guys bye